Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. He's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. He's a baby. Tough. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. And if you do, could have serious repercussions on future events. Now, he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. That's right, I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. All right, guys, we're officially back after my 20th wedding anniversary. Seems like it's been forever since we have recorded an episode. Terrence, how you doing today, my friend? Doing all right. You look tired. Bunch of overtime today. It's <laughs> double-edged sword. You look tired. I was like, how's that different than the other week? Right? <laughs> I know, right? So, yes, you are listening to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. If this is your first listen, thanks for giving us a listen. Also, thank you to our continued listeners. Um, we uh, just looked it up. We have listeners, obviously, in the USA, but we're also in 10 countries now, including Germany, Australia, Spain, Canada, the United Kingdom, Malaysia, Belgium, France, and Saudi Arabia. That is pretty cool, my friends. That's a pretty awesome. Right. I don't know how we got over there, but Gee, that's Terrence, awesome. what do you want to do today? I think we'll take over the world, <laughs> you know, from my favorite pinky in the brain. Oh, yeah. Um, so today's episode, we will be doing, as you can tell from the trailer, Back to the Future. Yes. And uh, I know Terrence has some stories about Back to the Future from his <laughs> days working in a video thing. But also, just to let you know, we are now officially on iHeartRadio and a little thing called Podmust. 
So all my emails and hard work paid off to get us on iHeartRadio. So if you have friends that's like, well, I only listen to iHeartRadio, now you can get us on there. So Terrence, the question. You thought you would get rid of the question. <laughs> no, sir. I've had extra long time to think about it. The question today is, if you could time travel to the past, where would you like to go and visit? I wouldn't even say where. It would more be or like when? a when. Yeah. Um, not anything like extravagant or anything, but uh, something, what I would do more or less is I would just travel back uh, far enough to be able to talk to my dad because he that's, passed that's away. That's exactly yeah. what I would say. Yeah. Um, just because he passed away uh, when I was 18. Actually, no, sorry. Uh, I was 19 when he passed away. So, uh, yeah, it would be nice to go back and, you know, have the heart to heart with the old man. Oh, sure. And uh, I was also thinking, like, I'd also see, like, how the Great Pyramids of Egypt were built. Yeah. You know, just, I wouldn't want to stay. I'd just like to drop just in like, and say, wow, yeah. that's how they did it. They come back, <laughs> you know. All right. Also, um, there was, today we are recording. It's June 19th. Um, there are a couple famous birthdays I found. In June 19th, 1897, Hmm. Mo Howard of the Three Stooges was born. Nice. Also, in 1962 on this day, Paul Abdul was born. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I only know her from uh, American Idol. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, this and, is the age difference here. Yeah, because you know her as the artist right. and I know her as the judge. Because she had one of them cool videos yeah. where she was with a cartoon, you know, cartoon cat. Oh, out of yeah, Ramona. yeah. Um, also, this is an interesting fact. On this date in 1954, the Looney Tunes character Taz first oh, Taz. made his debut in Devil May Hair car- cartoon. Huh. So I thought that was pretty little yeah, side that's note to get into. I'm going to go ahead and read, uh, since the, we haven't been on for a while, we have a couple of um, reviews. I'm going to go ahead and read and get those out of the way. Uh, the first one is from Jesse K85, uh, titled A Podcast Unlike Any Other. It gave us five stars, or they gave us five stars. It says, I love this podcast. It's great with the elder and the millennial banter back and forth. Very (laughs) diverse points of view and hot takes. It's very rare to find such an entertaining, family-friendly podcast in this day and age. Keep up the great work, guys. Excited for new episodes every week. So I, I like guess they it. like our banner. You know, oh, my yeah. dad was like, you need to you need to just chill out on Terrence. I was like, they like it. <laughs> I said he doesn't even remember what I say half the time anyway. For the audience while I listen to him. So. And then this I one. I have to relive it all over This again. one you're going to love. And I told him I would read it. But this is from Art Toast. Okay. <laughs> this is great sleeping material. Uh, five stars. Enjoy your podcast. I listen to some of it every night. I turn it on and set the timer or the sleep timer for 15 minutes. In about six minutes, I'm fast asleep. Keep up the good work. Love, Dad. LOL. You guys are doing a great, great job. So my dad wanted to throw us a little a little sly humor in there. But uh, he said he was going to go with Art Tist, but it was already taken. So he was eating breakfast, and he came up with Art, Art toast. toast. So thanks, Dad. There you go. You have your five seconds of fame. <laughs> and we got it in before the six-minute mark. Yeah, so you're still awake when you listen to this. Um, so with that being said, this is this is going to be a doozy. Um, it's a lot of information. Um, we probably will break it into two episodes, probably, um, depending where timing is and all that. So the longer I sit here and talk about nothing, the longer it's going to be. So Terrence, <laughs> let's go ahead and get into it. All right. So Back to the Future, release date, July 3rd, 1985. Its budget was $19 million, which is $44.7 million in today's 
uh, for including inflation. Um, opening weekend, USA, 11.3 million. Uh, that's 26.6 million uh, in today. Uh, gross USA, we're looking at 210.6 million. That would be 495.9 million. Uh, in today's money. And then we have finally cumulative worldwide gross, 381 million, and that's 897.4 million. So, needless to say, it kind of came out on top. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's no uh, unknown that this movie is, is a classic for sure. Uh, so, the director is Robert Zeminik. Uh, whoa. <laughs> Zemeckis. Zemeckis? Is it Zemeckis? I think so. Yeah. Uh, we'll go with that. So, Robert Zemeckis, <laughs> writers Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, technical aspects, runtime, one hour and 56 minutes. It feels longer. I didn't realize it was only an hour and 56. I thought it was like a two hour plus movie. Anyway, uh, sound mix, we're looking at 77 mil, uh, millimeter, uh, six tracks, 77 millimeter prints, Dolby, 35 millimeter print uh, as Dolby Stereo, and Dolby Digital. Uh, this was color, done in Technicolor. Aspect ratio is 1.37 by 1, negative ratio, uh, and 1.85 by 1, uh, theatrical ratio. So once again, we're looking at just like, I believe the last movie we covered was done in two different ratios, uh, one for a regular release and then one for the theatrical release. Uh, this camera was VistaVision VistaFlex. Uh, that one was another previous camera that we have gone over in a previous episode. Uh, Panavision Panaflex was another camera that was used. Uh, the laboratory that this was done in was Technicolor Hollywood USA. Uh, film length is 3,186 meters, Sweden. Negative format. So one, just I just wanted to go over this. Uh, when, we, when I say negative format, uh, that's the film reel that was used uh, – put this movie on basically um 35 millimeter also horizontal uh the eastman this was the type of film that it was filmed on uh so it was filmed on two different type of uh, film reels uh the first one being eastman uh 125t uh 5247 and then the other one is 400t 5294 and i have some little fun information about the first one which is the eastman 125t 5247 and that was uh this one was really vast it came out in the 1950s and it was super popular pretty much up until 1993 hmm. uh so that's why we're seeing this in this movie um because even though another film stock came in which was the uh did i write it down yeah the 5248 film came out in 52 uh, and then that was also being used, but this one still continued its use until around 1993. Can you imagine what they could do in this day and age with all the stuff they have? Oh, and yeah. It just, <laughs> just going back, it would just be amazing. Well, uh, I mean, a, a big thing about it is uh, it, there's a little more leeway uh, with film now because they're using digital and not uh, film reel. So when you hit you know, uh, record with film reel, with the old cameras, like you, you really want to nail that take. You, you don't want to have too many mistakes when you do your takes because there's less room for error. Uh, mostly because you know you, you, the film reel is expensive, so if you run out of film reel, that's it. So you got to make sure all your takes count. Uh, so yeah, that's just a little bit about negative format, aka the film reel that it's on. Um, 
moving on, the cinematographic process is spherical. Uh, then we're looking at VistaVision special effects, printed format, 35 millimeter Eastman 5384, uh, 77 millimeter uh, blow up Eastman 5384, and then D Cinema 2011 and 2015 re releases. Now, moving on to the awards. This is the fun part for me. Academy Awards USA 1986 winner Oscar Best Effects Sound Effects Editing Charles L. Campbell Robert R. Rudledge and nominee for Oscar Best Writing Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen Robert Z- Zemeckis How- Zemeckis? Zemeckis Yeah Zemeckis uh, Bob Gale uh, Best Sound Bill Varney B. Uh, Tennyson Sebastian II uh, Robert Twilwell, William B. Kaplan, uh, Best Music, Original Song, uh, Chris Hayes, Music, Johnny Cola, Music, uh, Huey Lewis, Lyrics, and for the song, The Power of Love. So <laughs> <laughs> so they, they won uh, a good amount, and they also were nominated for, well, they, they got the one winning, which is pretty awesome, uh, for special effects and whatnot. And then lots of nominees, so that just goes to show how good of a movie this is. Uh, the Golden Globes, USA, 1986. Uh, nominee, Golden Globe Best Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical. The Best Performance by an Actor in Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical, Michael J. Fox. Uh, best Screenplay, Motion Picture, Bob Gale, Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis. Uh, best Original Song, Motion Picture. Uh, that was, once again, for The Power of Love. The... BAFTA Awards, 1986, nominee, BAFTA Film Award, Best Editing, Arthur Schmidt, Harry uh, Karamidis, Best Film, Bob Gale, Neil Canton, Robert Zemeckis, Best Screenplay, Original, Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale, Best Production Design, Lawrence G. Poole, Paul, oh, that's two L's, um, Best Special Effects, Kevin Pike and Ken Ralston. Academy of Science Fiction and Fantasy Horror Films, USA, 2011. Nominated. Saturn, Best Award, Best DVD Collection for Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3 as part of a collection in the Back to the Future 25th Anniversary Trilogy. Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, USA, 2003. They were nominated. Saturn Award, Best DVD Classic Film Release, once again, that anniversary collection. Uh... Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, USA, 1986. So you just see this reoccur over and over. Uh, They won for Saturn Award Best Science Fiction Film, Best Actor, Michael J. Fox, Best Special Effects, Kevin Pike. Uh, They were nominated for Saturn Award Best Supporting Actor, Crispin Glover, Best Supporting Actor, Christopher Lloyd, Best Supporting Actress, Lisa Thompson, Best Director, Robert Zemeckis, and Best Music, uh, Ellen Silverty, uh, best costume, Deborah Lynn Scott. Now this is interesting. Academy of the Japanese Academy, 1987. Hmm. Winner, award of Japanese of the Japanese Academy, best foreign language film. So this one, best foreign film in Japan, which is pretty cool. We haven't seen that. Uh, I think, I don't we, think ever. we we saw one uh, foreign award. But it was in Germany in another, or something. Yeah, like. it was Germany, I believe. Um, so this is the second time we've seen 
uh, an American film pop up in a foreign award ceremony, which is pretty cool, I think. Uh, Casting Society of America, USA, 1986. They were nominated for Best cap, uh, Casting for Feature Film Comedy, and that's Mike Fenton, uh, Jane Feinberg, and Judy Taylor. Uh DVD Exclusive Awards, 2003, winner, AOL Movies DVD Premiere Award, Best Special Edition of the Year, Classic Movie for Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3, uh, and basically the whole trilogy. They were nominated for DVD Premiere Award, Original Retrospective Documentary Library Release, uh, Lawrence... I'm not even going to try that last name. That's... <laughs> um, and then once again, that's Back to the Future Part 2, Part 3. Uh, and then uh, I, I guess there's a documentary. I didn't know that. Um, so Back to the Future, the making making the trilogy. Uh, this came out in 2002, Parts 1, 2, and 3 for the trilogy. So that might be something we want to check out. That'd be pretty cool. I didn't even know there's a documentary about it. It might be on the uh, DVDs. That's true. As yeah. bonus material. As, exactly, exactly. I'll have to check it out. Uh, Golden Schmooze Awards. Oh, that's the, the Schmooze is <laughs> the back. The Schmooze is back. All right. Uh, 2010, winner of the Golden Schmooze. I just like saying schmooze. <laughs> Best DVD Blu-ray of the year for Back to the Future Part 2 and Back to the Future Part 3 trilogy. Uh, Golden Schmooze Awards again in 2002. Nominee. Uh, for the Golden Schmooze, Best DVD of the Year. Uh, for Back to the Future 2, 3, blah, blah, blah. Back to the Future Trilogy. Um, now, here we go. Golden Screen Germany, 1986. So they were in two foreign uh, award uh, ceremony type things. So, uh, winner for the Golden Screen. It's Pretty better awesome. than the Silver Egg or whatever. I know, right? <laughs> and then... Uh, seashell. The Silver yeah, Seashell. Yeah, that, that's what it was. <laughs> Uh, uh, then the Grammy Awards, 1986, uh, nominated for Grammy Best Album of Original Score Written for a Motion Picture or Television Special. Uh, Johnny Carolla, Chris Hayes, Huey Lewis, Lindsey Buckingham, Alan uh, Silverstein, Eric Clampton, and Sean Hopper. Hugo Awards, 1986, winner. That was Eric Clapton. What did I say? Clampton. Clapton. (laughs) Dyslexia, man. (laughs) All right, Hugo Awards, 1986. Winner, Hugo, Best Dramatic Presentation. Uh, Robert uh, Zemeckis, written by director. And Bob Gale, written by. Uh, And let's do this one. Yeah, International Film Music Critics Awards, 2010. Winner for the IFMCA Award. Best new release or re-release of an existing score. Uh, so Alan Silverstein for music and Douglas Fake for album producer. And next we have the National Film Preservation Board USA 2007 winner National Film Registry. The Online Film and Television Association 2014 winner of the OFTA Film Hall of Fame Motion Picture. Uh, Venice Film Festival 1985 winner Young Venice Award special mention for Robert Smekis Writers Guild of America USA 1986 nominee for the WGA Award Screen Best Screenplay written directly for the screen Robert Smekis and Bob Gale and now off to the synopsis for Back to the Future Marty McFly, a high school teenager and aspiring rock star, is accidentally sent back in time with a time machine made out of a DeLorean by the scientist Doc Emmert Brown. 
Marty must not interfere with any of the past or it could change his future. Marty will be able to find Doc in the past so he can get himself back. Back to the future. Dun, dun, dun. All right, now we're going to go ahead and jump into the cast. This film has a lot of actors and actresses that would go on to do greater things. Um, so obviously you have Michael J. Fox who plays Marty McFly. Christopher Lloyd, Dr. Emmett Brown, and I think he does an outstanding performance. Oh, yeah, he's by far my favorite in this movie. Uh, Leah Thompson played Lorraine Baines, and I always loved her. Oh, yeah. Uh, Crispin Glover played George McFly. Thomas F. Wilson played Biff. (laughs) Claudia Wells, Jennifer Parker. Mark McClure, Dave McFly. Wendy Jo Sperber, Linda McFly. George DeCenzo, Sam Baines. Francis Lee McCain, Stella Baines, James Tolkien, not the writer of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, <laughs> but Mr. Strickland, J.J. Cohen, uh, the skinhead, Casey Siamasco played 3D, and this one, this one's interesting, and he, he went on to do great things. Billy Zane. Really? Played Match, and Henry Waters Jr., Marvin Berry. Now, before we get into the biography, uh, where would you rank this upon up with... Uh, the greatest trilogies of all time. The greatest trilogies of all time. Right. Okay. Um, well, this is taking into account how I also felt about the second and third one. Uh, when it comes to uh, a series, this one, the first one for me anyway, is by far the best of the three. Um, and then it kind of, which each one, it kind of dips down, I, I think. Um, so as a quality of a trilogy altogether... Um, probably lower than you would expect, uh, just because. Oh, not me. I, I would put it lower too. Yeah, I know uh, some people really like these movies. Yeah, and it's 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 not even because of the first one, because I do actually like the first one. It's the second and third one that I have a problem. But honestly, with. But, but honestly, <laughs> the second one probably has my favorite moment. It was when he has that hoverboard at the skateboard. Oh, yeah, hoverboard. of course. It's probably my favorite out of the whole trilogy. But we're not talking about the trilogy. Of we're course. just talking just about this. I just wanted one. to see if we were on the same page, and I think yeah. we are. So for the biography, I chose, obviously, Michael J. Fox, because I know there'll be other Christopher Lloyd movies that we'll do. Of course, yeah. Um, His date of birth, June 9th, 1961, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. At 15, he successfully auditioned for the role of a 10-year-old in a series called Leo and Me in 1978. Hmm. At 18, he moved to Los Angeles and was offered a few television series roles, but soon they stopped coming and he was surviving on boxes of macaroni and cheese. Then his agent called to tell him that he got the part of Alex P. Keaton on the situation comedy Family Ties in 1982. Huh. So he was one of the, you know, you hear about those actors that struggle. He was oh, living yeah. off macaroni and cheese. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I like College mac and kids cheese, living every day living off mac and <laughs> no, cheese. No, now it's, now it's, uh, what's the ramen noodles? Bah, yeah, yeah, a cup ramen. Um, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 1991. Adopted the J as a homage to character actor Michael J. Pollard. His birth middle name is Andrew. Okay, so another actor who changed his name to have right. a stage do you know, name. Do you know why uh, why he did that? Because back in those days, there was things like Teen Beat and all that. You know what I mean? Okay. For, for yeah, girls yeah. or whatever. And he didn't want it to say Michael A. Fox. Oh. <laughs> because, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he quit high school before graduating from his senior year. He said he regrets quitting school as a stupid, youthful mistake. Hmm. So, Michael wonder, J. Fox says, stay in school, kids. I wonder if uh, he ever went back and got his GED. Well, he, I, know he got, I know he got an honorary 
degree later. Oh, okay. But I don't know. Huh. Has forbidden any of his kids to quit high school for Hollywood, demanding that they at least finish high school and maybe attend one to two years of college. That's good. So learning, taking his own mistakes and right. making sure it's not passed again. On. Yeah, exactly. That's I like that. According to an interview with Fox, he originally decided to use the middle initial J instead of his own A because he didn't want Team Magazine to use the headline such as Michael A. Yep. Fox. So, <laughs> uh, was not the first choice to play Alex Keaton on Family Ties. He was only chosen after Matthew Broderick, hmm. who was originally considered for the role, refused to have a long-term television obligation. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, that makes and sense. And I don't know if I like him in that Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Bro. He negotiated, get this one, you know he's down on his luck, get this one, negotiated the deal for family ties from a phone booth outside a now defunct Pioneer Chicken restaurant in Hollywood because he had no phone at home. (laughs) He was told the network would need to call, and he said he was only home between the hours of four and five. He waited for the call, and fortunately he was there to answer it and secure the family ties role. Wow. Talk about dedication. So he took the phone So he just threw a pay phone to land the role. (laughs) That's amazing. As he revealed in his autobiography, Lucky Man, he happened to be sitting right next to Princess Diana at the world premiere of Back to the Future in 1985. Wow. Michael was the first guest on The Daily Show in 1996 when Jon Stewart took over as host on January 11, 1999. And he has some pretty famous quotes. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, you got to admire him for what, what, you know, that disease he's going through, the Parkinson's, and then to have the outlook on life that he does, so... The first one is pain is temporary, film is forever. That's that's true. Yeah. I am careful not to confuse excellence with perfection. Excellence I can reach for. Perfection is God's business. That's good. Yeah, I like it. On being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, people always ask me if I say to myself, why me? And I tell them, why not me? Hmm. I mean, man, family is not an important thing. It's everything. Yeah. I mean, I admire the guy. Some pretty powerful quotes. So we're going to look at his salaries as his career went on. So for Back to the Future in 1985, he made $250,000. Ooh, wow. Teen Wolf in 1985, which he was great that. Oh, yeah. $750,000. The Secret of My Success in 1987, $2 million. I never saw that. uh, It's been a long time. Back to the Future Part 2 in 1989, $5 million. Very nice. Back to the Future 3 in 1990, $5 million. And Greedy in 1984, $5 million. So we could call him the $5 million kid. <laughs> All right. And imagine making $5 million that Are young. you ready to get down to the the fun stuff? Oh, yeah. The I think it's fun. You like the technical stuff. I like the fun stuff. I like it all, man. <laughs> That's why we're here. All right. Here we go. The rights to the film and its sequels are owned by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gill. In a 2015 interview, Zemeckis maintained that no reboot nor remake of the franchise would be authorized during his or Gill's lifetime. That's a good call. It's like they saw the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were like, there's going to be a time and age where they're going to do But that was in but 2015. Anyways. We're in 2019 now. No, that's so. true. Uh, writers Bob Gill and Robert Zemeckis actually received a fan letter from John DeLorean after the film's release thanking them for immortalizing his car. That's very true. Yeah. Get this. The script was rejected 44 times before it was finally greenlit. Wow. So Talk they about really persistence. Went through the ringer with this one. They're like, we want to make. That means they really wanted this movie to be done. They oh, yeah. just kept going. They believed and going. in it. They did, yeah. 
In 2010, during a cast reunion, Michael J. Fox said that strangers still call him McFly <laughs> constantly. Fox said that the most remarkable instance was when he was in a remote jungle in the South Asian country, Bhutan, located between China and India in the eastern Himalayas. A group of Buddhist monks passed him, and one of them looked at Fox and said, Marty McFly. That's so amazing. So he was it from a Buddhist monk. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. That's great. When Lorraine follows Marty back to Doc's house, she and Doc exchange an awkward greeting. This marks the only on-screen dialogue that Christopher Lloyd and Leia Thompson ever have, though they have appeared together in six movies. Oh, wow. Okay. Huh. Wow. Of all their movies, that's the only one. Right? That's so weird. Apparently, Ronald Reagan was amused by Doc Brown's disbelief that an actor like him could become president, so much so that he had the projectionist stop and replay the scene. He also seemed to enjoy it so much that he even made a direct reference of the film in his 1986 State of the Union address, as they said in the film Back to the Future 1985, where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. According to Bob Gill, on October 26, 1985, a group of people showed up at the mall used to film the Twin Pines Mall location to see if Marty would arrive in his DeLorean. He, of course, did not. <laughs> Biff's catchphrases, make like a tree and get out of here, and butthead, were improvised by Thomas F. Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, yeah, he's quite the character. Claudia Wells, who played Jennifer Parker in Back to the Future in 1985, gave up her role to Elizabeth Shue for Back to the Future Part 2 and 3 when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. Okay, yeah. So, family first. Christopher Lloyd stated that he always wanted to do one more movie in which Marty and Doc Brown traveled our time travel back to ancient Rome. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be crazy. Christopher Lloyd stated that he... Oh, we already just said that. Sorry. Yep. When this movie was previewed for a test audience, Industrial Light Magic had not completed the final DeLorean in-flight shot, and the last several minutes of the movie were previewed in black and white. It didn't matter, as the audience roared in approval for the final scene anyway. Hmm. That's very interesting. The inspiration for this film largely stems from Bob Gill discovering his father's high school yearbook and wondered whether he would have been friends with his father as a teenager. Gill also said that if he had the chance to go back in time, he would really go back and see if they would have been friends. Hmm. After the film's release, body kits were made for DeLoreans to make them look like the time machine. That's awesome. <laughs> Doc- Those are probably really hard to get nowadays. Oh, man, I wonder how much they are. They're probably expensive. Oh, yeah. I mean, if Delo- you could find... After this movie, the, the price for a DeLorean went up. Oh, one. yeah. I mean, even now, if you see... Every now and then you'll get lucky. You'll find, like, a DeLorean for, like, five grand or something like that. But typically, because of this movie, they're pretty still well, pretty expensive. Well, you'll find out later on in these notes as I was going through. Um, they said that th- they had three for this movie, and they broke down all the time. They said they're a terrible car. <laughs> I was like, wow. Um... Doc's distinctive hunched-over look developed when the filmmakers realized the extreme difference in height between Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox. Fox is only five foot four and a half, while Lloyd is six foot one. To compensate for the height difference, director Robert Zemeckis used special blocking where the two often stood for far apart at different camera depths. For close-ups, Lloyd would have to hunch over to appear in frame with Fox. The same approach was used in the sequels. Huh. So that kind of reminds me of the Magnificent Seven we did where, you know, they yeah. put a pile of dirt on that stand. <laughs> this was the top grossing release of 1985. Crispin Glover claimed to have seen the film only once shortly after its release. In contrast, Christopher Lloyd states that when he occasionally stumbles across a uh, Back to the Future film while channel surfing, he often sits down and watches it. <laughs> That's pretty cool. 
In December 2007, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or as aesthetically significant. Hmm, okay. Yeah. I can the see that. sticker on the back of Doc's truck, one nuclear bomb can ruin your whole day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can ruin no lie. <laughs> um, all right, here we go. Michael J. Fox has always been the first choice for Marty, but he was unavailable due to scheduling conflicts with his work on Family Ties. Hmm. As Family Ties co-star Meredith Baxter was pregnant at the time, Fox was carrying a lot more of the show than usual. The show's producer, Gary David Goldberg, simply couldn't afford to let Fox go. Zemeckis and Gell then cast Eric Stoltz as Marty based on his performance in Mask in 1985. After six weeks of filming, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gill felt that Stoltz wasn't right for the part, and Stoltz agreed. By this stage, Baxter was back fully on the show, and Goldberg agreed to let Fox go off to make the film. Fox worked out a schedule to fulfill his commitment to both projects. Every day during production, he drove straight to the movie set after taping of the show was finished every day and averaged about five hours of sleep. The bulk of the production was filmed from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., with the daylight scenes filmed on weekends. Reshooting Stoltz's scenes added $3 million to the budget. Wow, that's rough. But at the same time, like, not only is he pulling in a lot of money just because he's doing both the show and the movie, but, uh, I mean, like, five hours of sleep. Well, I guess I get, like, four hours of sleep. <laughs> but, like, yeah, no, I mean, still, that's, that's dedication and also a lot of work. Because sleeping and then on set all day. All day. And it gets hot on set, too. At the London Comic Con in 2015, Michael J. Fox admitted that his four children, one son and three daughters in their teens and 20s, never saw this movie. That that makes sense, honestly. Like, you see a lot of... uh, uh, I'm pretty sure they know, but, I mean, you you look at sort of uh, a lot of different actors and their kids it goes one of two ways like the kids are like completely engrossed and like oh that's cool you know my dad did this like that's my dad like who yeah cares? but you know i mean how weird would it be you know them going to school high school even their high school years you know and being like your dad was marty mcfly i wonder if they got picked on you know McFly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, thomas f wilson almost had his collarbone broken in the scene where marty and biff are about to fight in the cafeteria as Eric Stoltz roughed up Tom Farrell take after take, despite repeated requests from Tom to tone down the aggression, huh. Tom later said he was about to return the favor during filming of the car park scene outside the dance, but Eric was fired before the confrontation could take place. <laughs> the DeLorean was deliberately selected for its general appearance and gold-wing doors in order to make it plausible that people in 1955 would presume it to be an alien spacecraft. Hmm. Producer Neil Canton offered the role of Doc Brown to Christopher Lloyd after having worked together on the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the 8th dimension in 1984. <laughs> Lloyd originally turned it down, but changed his mind after his wife convinced him to take the role. He improvised some of the lines. <laughs> According to an interview he did on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson in 1962, Crispin Glover lost his voice due to nervousness while filming this movie. For some scenes, he had to silently mouth his lines while his voice being dubbed and later at a recording studio. Hmm. I mean, just from nerves. Yeah, right? According to Bob Gill, Johnny Depp auditioned for the role of Marty McFly. I looked through the notes and I said, geez, I don't even remember that we read Johnny Depp. So whatever he did, it wasn't all that memorable, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. A persistent myth is that Michael J. Fox had to learn to skateboard for the film. In fact, he was a reasonably skilled skateboarder, having ridden through uh, throughout high school. However, Per Willander acted as a skateboarding double for the complex scenes. He also choreographed and coordinated the skateboarding action together with Robert Schmelzer. That's cool. 
Did you ever have a skateboard, Terrence? I did. I skated for a long time, actually. Oh, yeah. And then someone stole my skateboard, and that was it. Yeah, I, I miss it. Those were good days. I've actually been thinking of like just buying one. Just, just to skate. To, yeah. To stop you. Uh, from the day the film wrapped to the day it was released was a mere nine and a half weeks. Dang. An unprecedented short lead time for a major, mov- a major movie release. Yeah. Huey Lewis was asked by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale to write a song for the film. However, the two Bobs were not thrilled with the first song Huey brought back to them. After explaining what they were hoping for, Huey came back with The Power of Love. He was then told they needed one more song, and so upon viewing a cut of the film, Huey got the inspiration for Back in Time. Hmm. It took three hours in makeup to turn the 23-year-old Leah Thompson into the 47-year-old Lorraine. Wow. That's a long time Just to sit down. Just a set of makeup, Yeah. While filming the parking scene with Marty and young Lorraine in the car, the production crew decided to play a practical joke on Michael J. Fox's expense. Or at Michael J. The scene called for Fox to drink from a prop liquor bottle filled with water and do a spit take when he sees Lorraine with a cigarette. For a specific take, however, the prop liquor bottle was switched for one which contained real alcohol inside. <laughs> Fox, unaware of this, performed the scene and drank from the bottle, only discovered the switch after the fact. The full gag is featured on the outtake section of the DVD. <laughs> Marty McFly mimics famous rock stars during the later part of his performance at the school dance when he starts playing heavy metal. His kicking of speakers was from The Who. The full-circle guitar strum Pete Townsend of The Who and Bruce Springsteen playing the guitar while lying down, Angus Young of ACDC, hopping across the stage with one leg kicked up, Chuck Berry and Young, and his solo, Jimi Hendrix and Edward Van Halen. Doc Brown refers to gigawatts of electricity. This is now obscure, but one standard pronunciation of the word gigawatt, one billion watts. (laughs) During his time on the film... And being a method actor, Eric Stoltz refused to answer to any other name but that of his character, Marty McFly. When Christopher Lloyd was told that Stoltz was to be replaced, he asked, who's Eric? And after further explanation, he added, oh, I really thought his name was Marty. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, When Thomas F. Wilson asked about this movie by enthusiastic fans, he walked to hand them a postcard of frequently asked questions as a time saver. That's great. (laughs) Leave it to Biff. Although Eric Stoltz's scenes were all reshot with Michael J. Fox, one image of Stoltz remains. During the one scene in the 1950s diner, there is a close-up of Biff's face as Marty launches a punch at him. And this was not reshot, so that as well as Stoltz's hand and arm, his head is also visible to the left of the screen for a few frames. Hmm. This, or the film, was banned in China, mainland, for a while because the notion of time travel disrespects history. The ban has been lifted now. <laughs> That's a weird that's a weird band. Reason to ban it. Yeah. All right. The test audience to whom the movie was initially screened was not told that the movie was intended to be a uh, was not told the movie was intended to be a comedy. Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale recalled that the atmosphere in the cinema started to get really tense during the scene where Einstein the dog is sent through time because the audience was expecting if something gruesome had happened to the dog. In the opening sequence, all of Doc's clocks reads 7.53, 25 minutes slow, as said by Doc on the phone, except for some broken clocks on the floor. One of them, next to the case of plutonium, reads about 8.20, unclear because of the angle, which would make it the only clock in the room right on time. Hmm. The Screen Actors Guild can't have two people with the same name on their books, so Michael J. Fox inserted the J in the name to differentiate him from an actor called Michael Fox in Back to the Future 1985. Marty goes back to the year... 1955. His dad is a huge fan of the show Science Fiction Theater, something Marty uses to his advantage. The original Michael Fox 
starred in the Real Science Fiction Theater in the year 1955. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah, right? The University of Southern California Film School writing classes used the screenplay for Back to the Future as the model of the perfect screenplay. Wow. That is really interesting. Yeah, right? When Robert Zemeckis was trying to sell the idea of this film, one of the companies he approached was Disney, who turned it down because they thought that the premise of a mother falling in love with her son, albeit by a twist of time travel, was too risque for a film under their banner. In fact, Disney was the only company to consider the film too risky. All other companies said that the film was not risky enough compared to other teen comedies at the time. For example, Fast Times at Ridgemont High in 1982 and Revenge of the Nerds in 1984. Huh, that's very interesting. But it 100% makes sense. Disney's always had very strict guidelines. And they, they are very, very careful of what they put under the Disney uh, franchise. Right, but remember Tron came out That's true. sometime around this time. I can't remember exactly, in 82, 83. Yeah. And remember, they didn't make another live-action movie for a long time. That's also so, true, yeah. Michael J. Fox was allowed by the producer Family Ties to film this movie on the condition that he kept his full schedule on the television show, meaning no write-outs or missing episodes, and filmed most of the movie at night. He was not allowed to go on Back to the Future promotional tours. Hmm. And that is rough. To be the lead actor and not go on these promotional tours. But you got to admit, he was probably the lead actor on the TV show, too. So you can't just have him yeah, miss exactly. episodes. Yeah, exactly. You can't just leave. Especially because they were saying during the filming, um, uh, his the other lead role was, was pregnant and not there. So he had to take the right. helm of uh, really pushing the show. A marketer hoped to get a prominent placement for California raisins somewhere in the film. <laughs> he suggested putting a bowl of raisins on a table at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. He had also told the California Raisins Board that this this would do for raisins what E.T. the Extraterrestrial in 1982 did for Reese's Pieces. <laughs> Bob Gale informed him that a bowl of raisins would photograph like a bowl of dirt. <laughs> the only thing that appears in the film is Marty jumping over Red sleeping on a bench that is advertising California raisins. Unhappy with their product placement, the California Raisins representatives complained to the producers and had their $5,000 refunded. Hmm. Another deleted scene shows Marty peeking in on a class in 1955 and seeing his mother cheating on a test. (laughs) Despite Marty and Jennifer crediting Doc as the origin of the repeated line, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything, Jennifer claims it is something he has always said. Doc never says the line once in any of the Back to the Future movies. It is Marty who says it first to his father after the dance. Later, an even older George McFly uses the line. So, uh, it's interesting how you you get these iconic quotes, and they're usually misquotes. Or the the person that didn't even say them. Exactly. And and that happens a lot more often than you think. It's, It's weird. Or or I could say, Terrence, who said this, and you're going to come up with somebody that you probably thought always said that their entire life, and it wasn't even them. What's that? No, I'm just saying. Oh, oh yeah, in general, yeah. Oh, if yeah, I say, you know, live long and prosper, and you're like, oh, Captain Kirk said that because I've always heard Captain Kirk said that, you know, yeah, but it's yeah, actually spot. Exactly, yeah. So It's interesting how that happens. Right. Michael J. Fox has said that Marty's being characterized as riding skateboards, chasing girls, and interests, and playing music with hopes of becoming a rock star. It was the exact same way he was during his own high school days. <laughs> that makes sense. That, no wonder he played the part so well. <laughs> <laughs> the script never calls for Marty to repeatedly bang his head on the gold wing door on the DeLorean. This was improvised during filming as the door mechanisms became faulty. <laughs> the 1985 version of Doc's home is the garage that Marty and Doc hide the DeLorean in in 1955. In the opening scene, an article shows that the mansion burned down years before either for insurance money or due to an explosive experiment. 
The presence of this commercial development also implies that Doc sold the land surrounding the house for more money to fund his project. After all, he does state later that it took many years and his entire family fortune to build the time machine. That's crazy. The little little subtle things that they you got to catch on to. During Doc's demo of the time machine, just before he's about to leave for the future, he tells Marty, I'll get to see who wins the next 25 World Series. At the time the scene was written and shot, no one was thinking there would be a sequel, let alone one where the hook Back to the Future Part 2 would be Marty wanting to get a hold of a sports almanac so he could bet on games. Right. When Marty pretends to be Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan, he plays a tape labeled Edward Van Halen to scare George out of sleep. It is an untitled Edward Van Halen original written for The Wildlife in 1984, which featured Leah Thompson and starred Eric Stoltz. Hmm. So there again, you have them all you know, tied together or whatever. That's pretty awesome. According to Michael J. Fox on the 2010 DVD and Blu-ray interviews, the interior of the DeLorean was so tight due to the added props that every time he had to shift gears, he would reportedly hit his forearm on the handle that turns on the time circuits, and he would also wrap his knuckles hard against the time display board. If you pay attention during the car chase with the terrorists, you can hear these hit every time Marty uses the shifter. Ha! Huh. Michael J. Fox is only 10 days younger than Leah Thompson, who plays his mother, and is almost three years older than his on-screen father, Crispin Glover. A Texaco gas station is shown both in 1955 and 1985. Interestingly, Christopher Lloyd's maternal grandfather was one of the founders of the Texaco Oil Company. That's really cool. That's really cool. The production ultimately used three DeLoreans, three real DeLoreans. Billy Zane makes his first on-screen appearance in this film as Match. So this is his first. Very first. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Christopher Lloyd based his performance as Doc Brown on a combination of physicist or of combination of physicist Albert Einstein and conductor Leopold Stokowski. Brown's pronunciation of gigawatts as gigawatts is based on the way a physicist with whom Zekis and Gale met for research said the word. Hmm. According to Bob Gill, in one of the early drafts of the script, Marty's original last name was McDermott, but it was thought to have too many syllables. <laughs> it was Robert Zemeckis who then came up with naming him McFly. The gas-powered struts that hold the DeLorean's gullwing doors open would fall during the course of filming, uh, filming a take, so crew members had to be on standby with hair dryers to warm them up to stop the doors from drooping. <laughs> The set for Kingston Falls and Gremlins in 1984 is the same one used for this movie. Both movies were filmed in the Universal Studios backlot. Additionally, Frances Lee McCain, who played Lorraine's mother, Stella Baines, also played Billy's mother, Lynn Peltzer, in Gremlins in 1984. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. When Doc emerged from the DeLorean in a radiation suit, Marty asked him, Is that a Devo suit? Devo was an American post-punk musical group whose mainstream success was mainly in the late 70s and early 80s. The radiation suit Doc was wearing was similar to the ones Devo was known for wearing in music videos and live performances. That's pretty hilarious. (laughs) When Marty McFly leaves Doc Brown's garage because he is late for school, Bob Gale mentioned in a commentary that the garage was actually a flat put next to a Burger King restaurant in Burbank. As part of their agreement with Burger King, the studio wasn't given any money from the restaurant for their cameo, but Burger King did allow the crew to film their scenes for free and allow them to park there. The space alien gag first appeared in the screenplay's third draft, with the primary difference being that it was to be done to Biff instead of Hmm. his father. Yeah, okay. Here you go. I got the star next to these notes because this is (laughs) interesting. When Marty first arrives in 1955, he crashes into the farm of Old Man Peabody, who has a son named Sherman. 
This was a tribute to a segment in the Rocky and His Friends 1959 television series, Peabody's Improbable History, featuring the intelligent talking dog Mr. Peabody and his boy Sherman, who traveled to a different time in history using the W.A.B.A.C machine. It serves as a major inspiration for Doc Brown, Marty McFly, and the DeLorean Time Machine. In turn, the feature film Mr. Peabody and Sherman in 2014. Did you see that? No. Was it good? I don't know. I, I was, yeah, I was, it, was, it was on my list. I was hesitant to... Uh, I love Rocky and Bullwinkle, though. Yeah, oh, Rocky and Bullwinkle was great. Uh, based on the Peabody's improbable history segment, pays tribute to this movie as not only its overall stra- style, but a clever reference in a scene where Peabody and Sherman travel at unbelievably high speeds in the Wabak, traveling at 88 miles per hour and higher, much like the DeLorean. Hmm. So they pay tribute to it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. In the first scene at the diner, Marty asked for a Pepsi Free. This refers to a brand of Pepsi that was the company's first caffeine-free cola. Ironically, in the same scene, Marty asked for Tab, which was actually a diet cola brand produced by Pepsi's rival Coca-Cola. Regardless, both orders are, are confused. The man behind the counter. Yeah, I love Tab. I mean, I no, I don't. I don't think I've seen Tab. You got to be kidding me, audience. Terrence <laughs> doesn't know what Tab, the soft drink, is. I'm going to have to get you one. They still make them, but I don't know if I want to buy the whole 12-pack. <laughs> wow. Wow, I can't believe it. All right. That was a, that was a culture shock right there. I could get I mean, well, to, to be fair, I was never a big soda drinker. Well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. But you would still remember Tab. It was the, the pink can, kind of like your Monster Energy, but it was pink. It said Tab. Maybe it was a... Um you know how you'll find some products in some parts of the United States and no, others? No, no. Tab was, was worldwide. Huge? I'm sure. Oh, okay. oh, people, help me. <laughs> As of 2011, the Hill Valley Clock Tower set has been through three different fires. The first one happened shortly after the finishing of Back to the Future Part 2 and Back to the Future Part 3. Filming was done simultaneously. I didn't know they were done simultaneously. Did you? No, I didn't. Huh. Now, were all the original surrounding buildings burned to the ground by lightning? Huh. The wow. second fire in 1994 almost destroyed the structure. In 2008, the fire that destroyed the nearby King Kong 1933 ride set, along with two archive vaults with the New York Street, slightly scorched the tower. Oh, huh. Man. That's insane. In the original script, Doc Brown and Marty sell bootleg videos in order to fund <laughs> the time machine. This plot point was removed at Universal's request as they did not want to be seen as promoting piracy. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. There are only about 32 visual effects shots in the entire film. Really? The main setting hmm. in 1955 is the year that Albert Einstein, the dog's namesake, died. Hmm. Match, Billy Zane is the only one of Biff's three sidekicks, sidekicks without a single line in the entire movie. It's not until Back to the Future Part 2 that Match finally has a line. The Burger King, Toys R Us, and yes, the adult theater that can be seen in the beginning of the movie was confirmed not to be product placement. It was confirmed by Robert Zemeckis. All those just, all those places just happened to be there at the time of the filming. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. I mean, like, why would you provide that? You right, know, it's just I mean, kind of an accident. Just, like, we were there. filming here, and that's what was in the background. Alan Silvestri's score begins 18 minutes into the movie, appropriately when the DeLorean time machine is revealed. Alan Silvestri's orchestra for the score of the film was the largest ever assembled at that time. 85 musicians. Wow. Okay. I, I would think Star Wars in 77, but John Williams would be pretty big. But yeah. they say this one was the biggest one, so we're hmm. going to go with it. 
When Marty is playing Johnny Be Good and Marvin calls his cousin Chuck Berry on the phone to tell him about the new sound he was looking for, this is all taking place on November 12, 1955. On that date, in actuality, Berry was named Most Promising New R&B Artist by Billboard. Oh, wow. Okay. When Marty tells Doc that Ronald Reagan is president in 1985, Doc scoffs by asking if Jane Wyman is the first lady. Wyman had actually been married to Reagan from 1940 to 1948, though Reagan was already married to Nancy Reagan. Hmm. The house used for Doc Brown's house is the Gamble House at 4 Westmoreland Avenue, Pasadena, California. It was a house of the Gamble family until 1966 when it was turned over to the University of Southern California. It is now a historical museum. Gamble as in... Oh, have I ever been uh, to that location? To I don't, I don't, I don't oh, Pasadena? No, I haven't been. Oh, okay. I've passed through it, but I haven't stopped in Pasadena. I'd drive through it to get to uh, San Jose. Executive producer Steven Spielberg initially had some reservation about hiring composer Alan Silvestri, having been unimpressed by his score for Romancing the Stone in 1984. During a preview screening in which the film was accompanied by a temporary track that only used part of Silvestri's score, Spielberg commented to Robert Zemeckis, that is a particularly grand cue was that sort of music the film needed. <laughs> Unaware that it was indeed one of Silvestri's uh, cues. Huh. So he liked the music even though he was like, we don't want this guy's kind of music. Yeah. It's that's, weird. Yeah, you know? yeah that's... Uh, could uh, make up their minds. A very brief <laughs> scene was cut in between the scenes of the McFly family dinner and Marty being woken up by Doc's phone call. It involved Marty preparing to send his demo tape to, rec- to a record company. Marty decides not to do it and leaves the empty manila envelope on his desk. In a scene that remains in the film, he goes to breakfast with the manila envelope sealed, suggesting that he has decided to send it in. Huh. The Twin Pines Mall is, in fact, the Puente Hills Mall in the city of Industry, California. Today, JCPenney is no longer an anchor there. Hmm. Steven Spielberg gives a nod to Stanley Kubrick in the first few minutes of the film when Marty is first over at Doc's house looking for him and doesn't find him. He hooks up his guitar to Doc's electrical equipment. The first dial he turns up is labeled CRM114, which Kubrick uses as a reference throughout many of his films. Hmm. I think I remember. Yeah. Yeah. When Marty is walking down the street to the soda fountain in 1955, the music score in the is the four aces singing Mr. Sandman. He passes a record shop with a poster in the window advertising the Cordette's original version of the song. Hmm. Doc Brown's car in this film in 1955 is a 1950 Packard Super 8 convertible. Do you know what that is? Yeah. I don't. Just only because I remember I just wanted to make sure. Like, in the movie. <laughs> well, like, I'm saying, like, that's the only reason why, because, like, I, I, know I don't... know it wasn't the movie. I, I just didn't know I'm saying, like, uh, what uh, it was. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but, like, yeah, I, I, the only reason why I ever really know a make and model of a car is because it got showcased in a movie. I thought this was one of those things where you're like, yeah, I know. Then, yeah, I don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. The first episode of The Twilight Zone in 1959, Where Is Everybody, opens with a young man wandering a town square in confusion, asking himself if he is having a bad dream. This sequence not only greatly resembles Marty's arrival in the Hill Valley of, 19, in Hill Valley of 1955 in this movie, but was shot on the same courthouse square backlot at Universal Studios. Holy crap. I remember. It's funny because I recently watched that first the, episode like a couple weeks ago. It's, can I just say that The Twilight Zone is fantastic? I've watched. Like, uh, I've, I've seen a handful of episodes, um, but my wife really loves it. So when we sat down and we watched like through it all and it's just. Yeah, man, it's just so the, good. The storytelling, you're captivated. They're only, what, 25 minutes, 30 yeah. minutes, if that. Man, right. they were fantastic. Like each story is just so 
bizarre. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's it's. I love it. It's great. Leia Thompson was cast as Lorraine McFly because she had acted opposite Eric Stoltz, the original actor cast as Marty in The Wildlife in 1984. The owner of the home where the tree from George McFly, Chris McGlover Dangles, is a small-time producer who does documentaries and biographies. Several years after this film was released, he put together a 15-minute documentary on a tree on Bushnell Avenue that was used in the film, featuring never-before-seen footage. The reference to Calvin Klein in the bedroom scene is a reference to a fad of the 1950s where people would have their names stitched in their underwear. If you remember, huh. he wakes up in his yeah. mom's when she was younger's bedroom when he got hit by the car, and yeah. she's like, "Calvin." He's like, "Why do you keep calling me Calvin?" She's like, "That's your name, is it? Calvin Klein is stitched in your underwear." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, when 1955, Doc Brown sees the videotape of himself explaining the need for 1.21 gigawatts of power. He goes back to the house and is seen t- talking to a picture frame that he refers to as Tom. When he returns the picture to the manual, we can see that it was Thomas A. Edison with whom he was speaking. <laughs> to Edison's left on the mantle are Sir Isaac Newton and Benjamin Franklin. To his right, Albert Einstein. Doc's inspiration for the time machine invention. Leah Thompson's character, Lorraine, is demonstrated to have an alcohol problem to varying degrees throughout the entire trilogy. Leah's name first appears in the film right at the same time as the drinking man clock in Doc's lab is shown. After Einstein travels to the future, Doc compares his watch to Einstein's watch to show the difference. Physicist Albert Einstein described a stationary clock versus a moving one in order to illustrate relatively the later clock moving more slowly. Hmm. On November 10th, 2010, Bob Gill received a plaque from the principal of Whittier High School, Hill Valley High School, in dedication of the film. This plaque can be seen by the students of the school near the front of the building, stating that this movie had been shot there. John Lithgow... You know who that is? I don't, actually. The the dad from uh, Third Rock from the Sun. Oh, okay. Uh, Dudley Moore and Jeff Goldblum. You know Jeff Goldblum? Oh, yeah, of course. We're all considered for the role of Doc Brown. I could see Jeff Goldblum. That would be... I mean, it would be a completely different type of crazy John, per- personality, but that, yeah. that would be very interesting. On June 2nd, 2008, a massive fire broke out in the backlot, destroying two archive video vaults and the New York City set used for Spider-Man 3. Hmm which is right across from the Hill Valley Clock Tower, which was minorly scorched by the time the fire was out. Man, that that clock tower's been through a lot. I know, right? Ranked number 10 on the American Films Institute list of the 10 greatest films in the genre sci-fi in June 2008. When the DeLorean is introduced and Doc Brown comes out of his smoke is pouring out of the interior of the car. This never happens again and has never explained why it was smoking. Hmm. Doc's van says Dr. E. Brown Enterprises, 24-hour scientific services. The two red labels on the flux capacitors says disconnect capacitor drive before opening at the top and shield eyes from the light. Doc's phone number in in 1955 is Klondike 54385. The letters K and L are both on the digit 5. Thus, the number still begins with a 555 prefix indicating a fictional number. (laughs) That's great. When the McFly family is sitting down for dinner before Marty travels back in time early in the movie, Michael J. Fox is seen drinking a can of Pepsi. Fox was a major endorser of Pepsi in 85, and some viewers criticized this scene as being a thinly disguised commercial. Crispin Glover based his performance as 47-year-old George in the early part of the film on Jack Nance's portrayal of Henry Spencer in Eraserhead in 1977. While filming George's writing scene in 1955, Crispin attempted to have the scene shot with his hair standing straight up like that of Henry Spencer. 
When Robert Zemeckis rejected the idea of saying it would not match what was shot the previous day, Crispin allegedly replied, Brando never matched. Huh. So. <laughs> Though the film Marty in 1955 won the Academy Award Best Picture for uh, in 1955, Robert Zemeckis and Bob uh, Gale say in the DVD Q&A session that they were not aware of this fact when they named their main character Marty. Both films also have a diner owner named Lou. Interesting. So just one of them coincidences, I guess. Right. The DeLorean Time Machine is a licensed registered vehicle in the state of California. While the vanity license plate used in the film says, Out of Time, the DeLorean's actual license plate reads 3CZV657. Huh. So it's an actual car. Somebody actually that has it. That is registered. And um, so my question to you, Terrence, are we going to stop here and go for... I'll leave you with this one more fact. And then we'll probably cut it to a second one. Episode. Yeah. Because right. we're, we're running close to the hour mark once yeah. we add everything. So I'll leave you with this one. This is a very – you're going to love this one. Ralph Macchio. Do you know who Ralph Macchio is? Uh, the Karate Kid. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was offered the role of Marty McFly. Oh, man. But he turned it down because he thought the movie was about a kid, a car, and plutonium pills. <laughs> Had he accepted, he would have been reunited with his girlfriend in parts two and three since Elizabeth Shue played Jennifer Parker, Marty McFly's girlfriend, who also played Daniel's girlfriend in The Karate Kid That's in 1984. Funny. Ralph's character played electric guitar in Crossroads in 1986, and Marty McFly plays guitar in this movie. <laughs> so with that, That's we're gonna funny. we're gonna close this out with Back to the Future Part One. Part One. Yeah. So we hope you guys are enjoying it. Uh, remember, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your frenemies about the podcast. Um, and I know a lot of you do. Um, so we thank you for listening. Remember, we can be found on. Almost everything now. Stitcher, yeah. iTunes, Google Play Music, uh, we uh, iHeartRadio, Podmust, Podbean, uh, Spotify. Um, also, if you have any questions or comments or you'd like to leave us a review, um, you can reach us at the Tragedy of Cinema, all one word, at gmail.com. So, with that being said, we're going to. We're also on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Oh, hey, thank you for reminding. We yeah. now have an official Facebook group. That yes, we do. Samuel. Basically volunteered, and I said, "Fine, you got full reins." He's like, "Whoa!" <laughs> but uh, it is actually. Let me see. I put some stuff on there. The Tragedy of Cinema Podcast Group. So if you'd like to join, search that out on the uh, old Facebook search bar. You'll find us. We have some stuff. We are going to be doing a live uh, Facebook live episode. Once we get not an episode uh, necessarily a where we will do Q and A. Okay, yeah, um, be- just something not necessarily an episode per se. We might throw in some trivia. We might even throw out some trivia questions about our podcast. Yeah. That if you've listened to them all and you can answer the be the first one to type in the right answer, then you might win a little prize for me and Terrence, maybe a little prize pack. Um, so, but we, that is the Tragedy of Cinema podcast group. Right now, we're up to fifty three members. So, thank you for those that have already joined. Um, we also have Instagram, the Tragedy of Cinema, and then we are also on Twitter, uh, the Tragedy of Cinema. So. We're trying. We're trying. Starting to branch out. So, yeah. um, if you want to follow us on those outlet uh, outlets, social media, whatever, um, go ahead. This old guy's trying to get hip to the all the new <laughs> stuff. So, uh, with that being said, I think Back to the Future Part One has come to a close, and yep. I believe that's a wrap. That is and a wrap. And cut. cut.